Hello, everybody. My name is Pat. And my name is Carson. Welcome to our podcast, MD Archives. This is the podcast where we talk about the body systems and then interview a doctor. This is episode seven of the podcast, and today we'll be talking about the muscular system as well as interviewing an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Today, we will be covering the structure of skeletal muscles and how they are attached to the body. For those that are new to our podcast, Carson will begin by explaining the structure of the skeletal muscles. What connects the bone to the muscle are tendons. These are dense fibrous tissue that can withstand pressure and help with stability in the joints. Pat can tell us about the structure of muscle that is connected to the tendon. First, the most important part of the muscle structure is the epimyceum. This is the small tissue that surrounds the muscle as a bundle of fibers, providing a path for nerves and blood vessels. Each bundle of muscle fiber is surrounded by a layer of connective tissue called the paramyceum. And also the endomyceum is the connective tissue that covers each single muscle fiber or muscle cell. Each bundle of muscle fiber is called a fascicle. They all work together to help with muscle contraction and movement of the muscle. Let's talk a little bit about muscle contraction. Fibers in the skeletal muscles are composed of myofibrils which have structures called filaments. There are two types of filaments. Thin filaments are called actin and thick filaments are called myosin. Muscle contraction begins with a nerve signal transmitted through the motor neuron. This signal is sent to every fiber in the muscle and calcium is released by the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The calcium causes the myosin filaments to pull the actin filaments inward, which causes the muscle to contract. Yeah, and when the muscle contracts, it pulls bones closer together to create movement. Another thing is, when the muscles are contracted, they become more visible because all the cytoplasm is forced outward. Every doctor deals with muscles in some form or another. They are important for movement and making motions like digestion and breathing possible. Next, we will have our guest. But before, we are going to move to a quick commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. In need of a new heart? Did your girlfriend break up with you? We got you with a new and improved heart replacement. It has a strong aorta to pump blood throughout the body, making you feel refreshed and ready to go. Anything you need, we got. Call one 800 we got your heart. Let's welcome our guest, Dr. Steve Jones. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell the listeners where you're from and what your journey was like to become a doctor. Okay. Um, well, I'm actually retired. I'm an ear, nose, and throat specialist, or was. And my journey probably started when I was a kid. My father was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And he was an um, uh, internist, a general doctor for adults. And he really liked what he did, so I got to see medicine a little bit from the inside. Okay. I had a pretty good idea of what it was about, what a doctor's life was about, what their families were like, the way they got ignored. <laughs> um, and so I kind of went in with my eyes pretty well open, but when I started college, I really wasn't even thinking about being a doctor. I was going to be an attorney. Oh, yeah. And I changed my mind um, because I like science. I like the idea of helping people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I changed my mind after your college, so I went into pre-med and I went undergraduate to Dartmouth and ended up going to medical school and then ultimately choosing ENT as a, as a specialty field. Okay. So I had, I had a really good role model. It's a lot easier to choose medicine if you know something about it, especially right. if someone in the family is a doctor or a nurse or a therapist. Yeah. 
why did you choose ear, nose, and throat as your specialty? Well, that's a good question because people, there's a lot of things you can go into now in medicine, and everything has been specialized and subspecialized. Um, probably the first decision people have to choose is do you want to be a surgeon or not? Mm -hmm because that divides most of medicine to a couple of pieces. There's also laboratory medicine, which is a separate uh, specialty. But I decided I like surgery, I like working with my hands, so I was gonna be a surgeon of some sort. Okay. And then I thought, well, um, I like seeing kids and adults. I like seeing males and females. I like doing plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery, um, cancer surgery, and ENT fit all those pieces. Sure. It's one of the few fields where you'll see a really good mix of, of patients of all ages. I mean, I'd see babies all the way up to the oldest patients of all. And most times, if you like seeing kids, you'll end up being a pediatric specialist of some sort. And then, do you know like any specialties that often like cross over with ENT, like people yeah. you work with? There are. There's a whole series that are close. Probably the closest is oral surgery, okay. oral maxillofacial surgery. Yeah. I mean, we sort of share the mouth with them in a lot of ways in the throat. Ophthalmology is the next-door neighbor. In fact, um, some of the bigger procedures, surgical procedures we do, we'd work with ophthalmologists at the same time. Okay. Uh, third one's neurosurgery because we share borders with the brain. Yeah. Um, so those are probably the three that are closest. And to a certain degree, plastic surgery. Okay. A lot of plastic surgery, especially reconstructive surgery, is done in the head and neck, facial surgeries, trauma surgeries, and so forth. In fact, one of my partners had fellowship training in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. Okay. So we would work with plastic surgeons um, or share similar sorts of procedures. Next question. What was like a normal day in the life like for you when you were practicing? The day in the life of a doctor depends on what level you are in your training. Mm -hmm. When you're a medical student, um, the first two years, all you do is memorize stuff. Yeah. You memorize, memorize, memorize. You get to see some patients, but not a lot. There's a huge amount of information. You basically study constantly. Okay. Third and fourth year of medical school, you actually get to do what we call clinical rotations. You'll work in medicine, pediatric, surgery, and then they'll let you choose some things that you're interested in to go explore. Like, I'm interested in ENT. Well, you can do three or four weeks of ENT. And when you're a medical student, you have limited ability to actually do things. So you're there mainly to learn. You can do some really simple procedures because you have to start learning at some point. Yeah. Um, but the hours are long, and even when you're done in the hospital, you go home and study. So okay. you just basically study constantly. Okay. When you go into residency, then you've actually picked what you want to, what field you're in. Right. Um, but residency is, it's the definition of a bad job. Okay. Long hours, high stress, low pay. Sure. <laughs> Sign me up for that job. That's a great job. Yeah. Uh, but that's what be a residence like. You don't get to choose the times that you show up someone else assigns you everything and you're there starting at a low level to learn and as you go through year after year my residency was five years okay. by the time you're finishing your fifth year you're pretty accomplished and you're getting to do more and more right. but basically you're not really in control of a lot of things there's always someone above you that's teaching you supervising you helping you doing things like that okay. um, some of the residencies surgical residencies are known for being long hours 
they made laws a few years ago limiting how long you could work in a week. Mm -hmm. And I believe they cut it off at 90 hours a week. You weren't allowed, you weren't supposed to work more than 90 hours a week. Okay. If you work for more than 24 hours in a row, you were supposed to then get at least eight hours off. Okay. You want any job that's described like that? I mean, that's, they actually, some of the times before they made the laws, people would spend more time than that at work a week. Yeah. It wasn't uncommon to do 100 or more hours a week at work. And part of the time there you have to spend there because you're on call, which means you don't leave the hospital. You spend all night there. Mm -hmm. So about every third or fourth night, I'd spend the entire night in the hospital also. Mm -hmm. You might sleep. You might not, depending on how bad the schedule was. Mm -hmm. Then when you finish, um, I did not do a fellowship after five years of training. I, that was enough for me. Some people do fellowships. They'll go on and do another year or two of specialty things. And then you get to go out and be a a real doctor not that you're not a real mm. doctor but a practicing sure. independent doctor yeah. and you can choose a couple routes you can go into academics I went into private practice which meant I joined a group of guys that were practicing and they had offices set up and all I needed to do was join them and start seeing patients mm -hmm. then the hours are under your control and they're a little better you you get to choose mm. how hard you want to work yeah. most doctors work hard I mean sure. my typical day I usually was up at 6 o'clock, sometimes earlier if I was doing surgery, and I would usually be home at dinner time. Okay. At times, it would be later than that. And then I'm on call. Uh, in our group, I was on call. I start out every third night and every third weekend. And then you have to work during those periods if someone needs you. Wow. And is not bad because there are some true emergencies where you have to go in. For example, think of obstetrics. When a baby is born, the obstetricians go into the hospital, that's it. And babies come when babies come. Mm -hmm. And it's not a C-section. When a woman goes into labor, you stop what you're doing, you go to the hospital, and you're there with them. And so you don't control your life very well. Okay. ENT is more controlled. There's fewer of those types of things. So right. there are times that I would never have to go into the hospital at all. I'd often take calls. Okay. Patients would have questions or the emergency room would call. But I wouldn't necessarily have to go in. And so then your lifestyle gets better. Right. But then it depends on what type of doctor you are. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was fairly well-scheduled hours, and we worked hard, but I had good partners so that when I went home at night, if I wasn't on call, my phone didn't ring. Right. So okay. it's, it's a lot of work. When diagnosing patients, uh, what systems of the body did you most often deal with? Well, I dealt. I can't do that on, that's a podcast from the neck up. Ear, nose, and throat specialty, we did, we were really the sole specialists of the ear. Sure. Um, nose, sinuses, throat, mouth, swallowing, voice, neck. Now, we didn't do a lot inside the skull. Some ENT guys do some work inside the skull. Usually, if you went inside the skull as an ENT doctor, you were out of bounds. Mm -hmm. um, and there was some crossover with oral surgery. For example, I didn't pull teeth. Surgeons pulled teeth. Okay. But it was basically all those structures. Oh, and we did not deal with spine and the neck. We would assist doing spine procedures, but the spinal column itself and the, the cervical spine was really a province of orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons. So we were limited in what we did anatomically. But if you like anatomy, the anatomy of the head and neck is by far the most elaborate anatomy in the whole body especially when you get down to doing some of the things inside the ear every little 
recess, every little curve, every something has been named and measured. And when you operate in the air, you're working in terms of millimeters, okay. sometimes quarters of millimeters. Mm -hmm. So you have to be very precise in anatomy. Yeah. Plus, there's just a huge concentration of nerves, blood vessels, muscles, including small ones, in the head and neck. So mm -hmm. I think it's the best anatomy in the body, personally. Mm -hmm. People would disagree, but, you know. So the next question is, how has medicine and technology changed in your field since you started, and what do you see, like, for technology in the future for medicine or just, like, different techniques? Well, the technology piece, as a surgeon, they develop occasional new tools or new procedures. There, was, there were several that occurred during my career that revolutionized the way we thought, especially about sinus surgery. Okay. Um, robotic surgery has come around and it has certain advantages for certain procedures. So on the surgery side, those are the two things that changed the most during my time. Uh, cancer treatment changed only a little. Um, operating on cancer is one of the two or three main ways of dealing with it. Okay. And it's not the answer for some cancers that plays no role whatsoever. The things that I dealt with some things were very, very good with surgery. Mm -hmm. And others, we didn't really make any progress during my time. Okay. Radiation therapy for cancers got a little better. Uh, but again, it wasn't the answer for everything. Chemotherapy improved a little. Again, not the answer for all cancers. So mm -hmm. I think the technology now is all going to be genetics. Okay. Immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibitors. Um, they're going to look at cancer genetically rather than saying let's cut it out let's try to kill it with chemotherapy um, they'll use vaccines immunomodulation things like that and that's okay. it's going to be that way for almost everything it's yeah. going to be that way for we're going to find out what it is in your genetics that allows you to do the best and we'll treat you that way so that's the future so as an ENT how important is it to understand like neurologically like senses of the ear nose and mouth like, someone, like, wasn't feeling something. Yeah. Um, special senses, we dealt with multiple. The main ones we dealt with were, obviously, hearing. Hearing, we're very good at, okay. um, in terms of measuring it, studying it. It's very scientific. It's very technological. Mm -hmm. um, and we know a lot about hearing. Uh, smell and taste, not so much. Mm -hmm. Not very good at it. Um, the testing methods we have are okay but not great and they rely almost entirely on the subjective response of the person you're testing sure. yeah. for example if you came in and said I can't taste anything I have no way of proving or disproving that right. if you tell me I can't hear anything I could tell if you were lying mm -hmm. there's tests that you can do that are outside your control to measure those things so Taste and smell were still way behind the other special senses. You know, we know a lot about vision, too, but um, we didn't specialize in that. So, yeah, I think that'll be a future for, for our field would be get better at smell and taste. Okay. What do you think the most, like, during your private practice, what are the most, like, common problems that your patients came into the office with? Well, first of all, half of all disease processes in humans have some manifestation in the head and neck. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. And including a lot of the most common ones. For example, in the ear, ear infections in kids, common. Hearing loss, 
very common, especially as you get older, ringing in the ears. These are things that we sell regularly. In terms of nose and sinuses, I mean, how many people do you know with allergies? Hay fever, cold, sinus infections, headaches. Those are things that we deal with. And then, of course, throat is tonsils, which are more of a problem in kids, tonsils and adenoids. Um, swallowing problems, voice problems. We saw a big evolution in voice over my career. I should probably throw that in. There's one of the things that evolved. We used to be not so good at voice, and we're much better at testing and managing okay. voice issues. And then you've got the lumps and bumps in the neck and tumors. They're less common than those other things. Okay. The, the bread and butter ENT stuff is the runny, stuffy nose, the ear issues we talked about, throat mm. problems, sore throat. Yeah. I mean, how common is that? What did you find to be like the most difficult obstacles and challenges when you were dealing with like cancer and other complex diseases? Probably the biggest challenge is the variability in results that you get. Okay. For example, you can do the same operation 20 times in a row and you might get different outcomes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's simpler things that aren't long-term issues for patients for say well this operation I expect you'll you'll have some mild pain but some people have severe pain I don't know how to predict that ahead of time sometimes it's personality driven sometimes not right. sometimes people heal in a week other people take two weeks mm -hmm. the big challenge is when you're dealing with things like cancer or more serious problems you can do the exact same treatment on patients and some of them live and some of them don't and that's frustrating for doctors because you always want to help people. Mm -hmm. And you realize that when you go in, not everybody's going to do great. You realize that. You want them to do great, but it's hard when they don't. Doctors are very success-driven. Mm -hmm. They've been successful in their studies. They've been successful in a lot of decisions. And yet when you don't have success in outcomes, um, you, you need to somehow manage that. The other thing you need to do is that it's... You, you want to have empathy with your patients, but if you get so tied up with all your patients' emotions, um, it can start to affect you personally. In other words, can you leave this stuff at work and come home when you know a patient of yours isn't doing well and is gonna die soon? Mm -hmm. You can't always just wipe that out of your mind, and so you carry a certain amount of burden with you as a doctor. Um, when you're on call, there's a certain amount of burden. Something can go wrong at any minute. So, um, guess what? Um, I'm not going to have a beer because I'm on call. And I have to be ready at the moment's notice. And I don't want to go to a movie because I might get called out. Yeah. And if something goes wrong, how's it going to be? So, there's, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And you need to learn how to deal with that. Learn how to leave work behind and relax and so forth. Doctors have a high rate of suicide. They have a high rate of drug addiction. It's because of the field. Yeah. So those are challenges. What advice would you give to people that are interested in entering ENT or just any medical field in general? Well, any medical field, a um, couple things. First of all, you better like science because yeah. you will get science for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Throughout my life, when I would do reading, I almost always did professional reading, and it's all scientific. Mm -hmm. Not so much for pleasure because I felt like if I was doing that, I could have been spending that time sharpening up on my profession, and I didn't think that was the best thing to do for my patients. So you'll get a lifetime of science. Don't even consider it unless you love science. Because not only is it just the anatomy and physiology and so forth, but 
to go into medicine, you, you have to take physics and chemistry and um, uh, biology. And even though I don't use those on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to understand those principles. Mm -hmm. So good in science. Number two, um, you have to be willing to work hard. Doctors are, I knew a lot of smart people, but there are a lot of smart people who wouldn't work hard enough to be a doctor. When you get into college, actually, you're you're groomed to be a doctor long before you get to college. Like you can't be some, you know, person that blows off studies and then suddenly pull it together and think now I'm going to become a doctor. That's not the way it usually works. Usually, you've had a long history of saying, I care about my studies. I'm going to do the extra work to get good grades, and that's the way it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be willing to forego um, income and free time. I had friends from college that had their second home before I actually started practice. They did yeah. finance and Wall Street and they were made a kajillion dollars and uh -huh. I was still paying. <laughs> yeah. And so you have to be willing to say, despite my hard work, I need to put a number of things on hold. Financial security, for one, you might have to go into debt. Mm -hmm. The average medical student, average, medical student graduates with about $210,000 in debt. Okay. You can get around that, but most people have to borrow money. My father sponsored my education. I graduated debt-free, so I was lucky. I started even, but most people start out in a lot of debt. And you got to, takes a while to pay that back. Yeah, sure. So you might say, well, gosh, if I worked that hard in something else, could I have done better financially? Um, you, if you go to be a doctor, you usually have a comfortable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you usually can. Most people would say you're being well paid, but you should be because you worked hard. Right. But you can make a lot more money doing other things. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't tell people to say, "Oh, I want to earn a lot of money." No, you'll make a comfortable living. You make a steady living. You always have a job, but it's not a giant bonanza in terms of money to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. Always do well, always have a job, always have that security. Um, one of the nice things is you do get a certain amount of respect automatically. I don't know if you ever hear of someone saying, oh, being a doctor, that's a bad job. No one, that's, no, no that's, no, why would anybody want to do that? You know, I could see I don't like blood, I don't want to become a doctor, but it's generally a highly regarded specialty, a highly regarded yeah. field, and people will grant you a certain amount of respect just because you've done all those things, mm -hmm. which is good. To go into ENT, again, you got to like surgery. Um, and you should probably explore it in some way. I tell if you're interested in any medical field, latch on to someone that does it and ask them questions. Are they happy? Do they like it? Would you recommend it to people? What's your lifestyle like? How, do, how hard do I have to study? What do I have to do? How long does it take? There's all these questions. And if you don't have doctors in the family, you wouldn't know it unless you start reading or asking questions. So ask questions. Okay. You can work in a hospital. You can, um, you know, there's more stuff online that you can figure these things out too. When I was, they didn't have the internet when I was going through it. So mm -hmm. you yeah. just had to work it out on your own. So, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, but it can be very, very rewarding. Okay. But don't do it just because you can. Right. Do it because you want to. You mm. really love the idea. Big shout out to Dr. Jones for coming on and doing this with us. We hope that you enjoyed the interview. I know we sure did. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you for next week's episode of MD Archive.